breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately, for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lauren Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Postpartum blues and postpartum depression are vastly different clinical problems, but are often treated as if one is simply a more severe version of the other. The complacency with which this disorder is often regarded sometimes leads to tragedy, all the more tragic since it may be avoidable if recognized and treated appropriately. Joining us today to discuss the challenges of identifying and treating postpartum depression is Dr. Nahama Dresner, an associate professor of clinical psychiatry and obstetrics and gynecology, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and director of Wellsprings Health Associates. Welcome, Dr. Dresner. Let's start just by talking about the difference. What's postpartum blues and what's postpartum depression? Postpartum blues occurs in anywhere from 65 to 80 percent of new mothers. It's extremely common. It's believed to be related to the rapid changes in hormones and other hormones that sustain pregnancy that decreased in the first 72 hours after delivery. And it's characterized by a roller coaster of emotions, a feeling of, of volatility, of reactivity, tearfulness, feeling overwhelmed, maybe feeling elated at one moment and feeling absolutely freaked out in the next moment. Okay, but wait a minute. You know, every woman has this hormonal roller coaster. So why is it that some women get postpartum blues and other women don't seem to? Can you think of any explanation for that? 
Well, it may be related to, again, as we, we talk more about postpartum depression, to the same theory, that being that in vulnerable women, hormonal changes precipitate or unmask uh, underlying mood symptoms. Mm-hmm. So many women experience postpartum blues that it's believed that probably everybody to some degree experiences, if we call it postpartum upheaval or feeling overwhelmed, then every woman would say, yeah, I've had that. Well, it's interesting that you say that because during my residency, I was taught by one psychiatrist that her belief was that every Every single woman had postpartum blues, but that everyone wasn't aware of it. And We used to sort of call postpartum pinks and postpartum blues. There were moments of euphoria, of I can't believe we finally have this baby in our lives, and look at them, they blink and they move their limbs, and this kind of tremendous feeling of satisfaction and gratification that's often commingled with feelings of anxiety, not being able to fall asleep, not being able to relax, feeling tearful, maybe out of proportion to what the circumstances would demand. All right. So then if we move on to postpartum depression, that's a very different entity. Postpartum depression occurs in about 13 to 15 percent of women. And it's the same, that's the same incidence as depression occurring in the general population of women. Depression is not more common after the birth of a baby, but it is more commonly diagnosed and uh, sort of comes into, into the realm of clinical recognition in the postpartum period because that's a period in a woman's life when she's getting medical care. Typically, women don't have an internist until they're late in their 40s or 50s or develop some kind of medical problem. Their primary care provider is their obstetrician gynecologist, and they see that caregiver more and more frequently over the course of their pregnancy and then postpartum, and then they're sort of in the care of a pediatrician, again, who may be aware of the mother's state of mind by virtue of her level of anxiety about uh, the care of her child. But she's in a circumstance where she has more access to clinical care, and the recognition of her symptoms is more likely to take place. Yeah. I mean, one of the key components I always thought that differentiated postpartum blues to depression is that postpartum blues is transient, you know, that in a period of time, it's going to go away. That's absolutely correct. Postpartum blues is a time-limited, really non-pathological. There's no DSM diagnosis code. It's not considered to be a pathological state. It usually lasts for four to nine days postpartum and remits spontaneously. Any symptoms that persist of any severity after two weeks are considered to be symptoms of depression. So if a new mother is feeling uh, extremely overwhelmed, unable to manage her emotions, tearful, so anxious that she's on able to be left alone with the baby, so fearful that she won't be able to adequately respond to the baby, again, combined with tearfulness. It's hard to know if that's sort of a normal reaction to the anxiety that a new mother has about caring for a baby. If that persists and if that becomes more severe uh, beyond the two-week point, then we really investigate for other symptoms of depression. All right. So the, the question for as an obstetrician is, is Can you tell early on in the game if someone's going to truly have a postpartum depression or you just have no idea? And I guess what I'm getting at is that there's postpartum blues and there's postpartum blues. You know, there's the person who's a little teary and a little anxious, and then there's the person who locks himself in the closet on day five and won't come out. So is there any way to predict early in the game who's going to really... One of the most uh, difficult and risky factors here is that a new mother isn't seen by her doctor for six weeks after delivery. Uh, I know some practices make a two-week postpartum phone call, check in with their patients at home to see that they're doing okay. Some hospitals even make a two-week postpartum phone call uh, to the mother to see that you know feeding and sleeping issues are being handled and that they're in sort of good shape emotionally. But that period of time is the period of greatest vulnerability. And the greatest risk factor is a previous history of depression. If as 
part of every office evaluation of a new, a new OB patient included two questions. One, have you ever been seen by a psychiatrist or a therapist? And two, have you ever been treated for depression or anxiety? About probably 25% of patients would say, female patients would say yes. And that is the most important way to sort of predict and track. What about screening tools like the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale? The Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Rating Scale has been validated in pregnancy. So it's a great and very simple tool to use in the OB office. I recommend using it at the first OB appointment, which is usually eight weeks, and then at 32 weeks, and then at the first postpartum visit. And it is a 10-item self-report questionnaire that, you know, again, can be available as part of sort of what the nurses fill out when they weigh a new patient, take their blood pressure, get some basic history. And if the score is over 12, it's diagnostic for depression, usually a score between 8 and and 12 is one that we're concerned about, and anything below 8 is really something we, we don't worry about. But that's an extremely useful tool early on in pregnancy. And actually, depressive symptoms are far more likely to emerge at the end of pregnancy than I think we imagine. Uh, that after 32 weeks, a tremendous number of women begin to have symptoms of depression. We may not diagnose it till after the delivery because we assume that they're not sleeping well because they're so big and they're getting up to urinate at night and they're uncomfortable because they can't breathe and all the usual kinds of things. And there may be also tremendous anxiety about the delivery that we attribute to that as opposed to looking at those symptoms more independently and saying, is this like you? Are you a nervous person? Are you usually somebody who can't sleep and you're upset? If it's completely out of the ordinary for that individual, then I would, again, investigate further. You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nathama Drosner about identifying and treating women with postpartum depression. So moving on to treatment, you know, if you've identified someone who's at risk, do you think that there should be psychiatric intervention mid-pregnancy if someone does score positive on that Edinburgh Absolutely. I, mean, I think, interestingly, a lot of women who come in for a first OB appointment will be asked as a routine matter, what medications are you taking? And they may say, I'm taking my prenatal vitamin, but they may not say, and I'm taking Zoloft and Ambien and Klonopin and a variety of other psychotropics. Or even when you ask them about their history, they will not include their mental health history along with their medical history. So it's very tough to know unless you really ask specifically about uh, a mental health history, what's going on. If they score anywhere in that 8 to 12 range during the pregnancy, I would investigate further. I would ask those questions if they haven't already been asked about their history, uh, and I would ask really how they're doing. Are you sleeping? Are you eating? How's your energy? How's your motivation? How's your concentration? Again, trying to focus on psychological symptoms of depression and not the physical symptoms of depression, which any pregnant woman might be experiencing. The beauty, uh, in fact, of the Edinburgh is that it's a depression rating scale that, that excludes what we call vegetative symptoms of depression. So if you ask a new mother who's three weeks postpartum, how's your sleep? How's your energy? How's your libido? you know, those are going to create a lot of false positives. You know, obviously you're an expert and very experienced in treating these situations, having been a liaison for the women's hospital for so long. Do you think that the majority of psychiatrists, if someone, for example, says they have a psychiatrist who you've identified as being at risk, are most psychiatrists experienced and comfortable dealing with women who are pregnant and or postpartum? Interesting question. I think that, in my experience, more OBGYNs are comfortable prescribing medications in pregnancy than psychiatrists. That actually leads to my next question. Is it ever appropriate for an obstetrician to treat this? 
You know, I think that pregnancy is a time to reevaluate uh, psychiatric treatment. That frequently, again, first point of entry into a healthcare system for a young woman might be uh, her first prenatal visit to a to an obstetrician's office, and that's a place to say, "Oh, you've been taking, you know, fluoxetine. You've been taking sertraline for seven years. When did you start taking that?" Well, when I was in college, I broke up with a boyfriend. I went to the health service, and they put me on the medication. And my uncle's a pharmacist, and so you know, I've been getting the Zoloft ever. You know, uh, f- those are very frequent stories that we hear. That's somebody who you want to say, well, have you ever thought, you know, maybe about having an evaluation to see if you still need to be on that medication or if there might be something, you know, to sort of assess whether or not it continues to be appropriate and necessary. I wish to thank our guest, Dr. Dresner, for helping us understand the challenges surrounding differentiating and managing postpartum depression and other psychiatric illness. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com Or to listen to this interview again, find us at www.reachmd.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. This ReachMD program is featured on CIRMO, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.cermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.